Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I'm Lena Ebjamra, and I'm your host. I am so glad you tuned back in. If you've been listening to the series, you know that we are in the middle of an awesome series called Uncomfortable Conversations About Racism in the Church. We've had some pretty awesome guests come on, and as I've mentioned before, this series is really aimed at the church, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Though the topic is relevant to everybody living in the United States right now, I believe we as Christians have a responsibility um, and a biblical duty to lead the world in reconciliation and in love. You might have noticed that we're not always doing that well, and so uh, my conversations with my guests is meant to help us Uh, change. And so uh, we don't want to shy away from uncomfortable conversations. Instead, we want to get a biblical worldview on how to love better. And so today here to help us engage in this topic is a fellow colleague, Dr. Carl Earl Lambert Jr. is a family physician uh, born right here in uh, Illinois in the Chicago area in an area called Calumet Park and continues to live in in the Chicago area. Just give you a little bit of a rundown of his, uh, I told him his his bio was so long and full. (laughs) I said, I'm going to have to summarize that a little bit, but long and short of it, in case you guys are from the area and want to connect, he got his bachelor's degree in St. Louis at Wash U, which if you know anything about it is top-notch university, did his uh, medical college of uh, here in Chicago at Rush University, went on to do his West Sub uh, uh, residency program in Chicago as well, which if I was still at Children's, you would have rotated under me, but I think I left before you your time. So I'm a little dating myself here. (laughs) And then you spent time working, uh, interestingly, at the Family Christian Health Center until 2016, when it sounds like you got back into academic medicine and you're now an assistant professor of family medicine, uh, doing uh, teaching and, and, and leading and mentorship and, and all the things that go along with academia, which in medicine is, is just a great and fascinating field where you can make a huge difference. Uh, truly, though, the list of awards that you've won is, is impressive. And so uh, I really am grateful that you've taken the time to be with us today. And, and I just uh, I'm excited about what we're going to talk about. So how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. I mean, it's, it's a it's a pleasure. It's an honor to be here with you. And, you know, all the glory goes to God um, for the ways that he's um, yeah. me and even using you on this podcast to have these courageous conversations. So thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, so you, uh, one thing I didn't mention, you are married uh, to your lovely Adrienne, which you've just told me is the preacher's daughter yeah. and you uh, attend a church called Bellevue Baptist in Chicago. Uh, talk a little bit about your church experience, uh, in terms of like growing up, how'd you come to Christ? Have you always been part of the black church or maybe tell us a little bit more about your background? Sure, sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I grew up a uh, household, two two parents, two younger brothers with special needs. So that was a big reason why I even got interested in medicine. But uh, initially, I went to church uh, really because it was tradition. It's like, you, you go to church or else, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just go on Sundays. And um, initially, you you know, I, I've, I've been going since I was a child. Um, and then eventually it got to a point um, where I really felt like I needed um, the Lord and, and, and it, it, it couldn't just be routine, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, I went to church in high school, but it wasn't really until, you know, um, college or late high school and college where I felt like this strong pull that um, I needed something to fill that void in my heart. So, you know, a lot of my life, I just true transparency, I felt a lot of rejection or emptiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, f- I felt a little unfairness, um, you know, in my role as being a big brother, I felt it was more like a caretaker instead of mm-hmm. like that usual relationship that you would have with your siblings. So even though there was purpose to that, I felt a little bit of anger and just confusion about it. So um, 
that led to some isolation and again all those feelings and, and the Lord really had to reckon with me um where to where to put those issues and it really was at the throne <laughs> putting that at his feet that I could wow. trust him with that and that he could give me true purpose and meaning uh even when I felt isolated or alone or misunderstood or teased or felt as the other. Um so I, I give when did that happen around around what uh, college would you say or it was in college. So I was, I was, um, even though I went to an ex- essentially a black church when I was in college, I was involved with a ministry known as InterVarsity. So that was multicultural mm-hmm. ministry. So mm-hmm. I had a chance to build community and worship with people who were white, black, Asian, the full gamut. So um, I think the Lord used that campus fellowship to really heal me and to draw me closer to him, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sure does. And I, I really appreciate that. Uh, when did you first feel in your life? Well, first, when did you recognize that you were black? I think that that's sort of interesting to me. Uh, was it a, a time or a moment where you saw yourself as uh, maybe not just an American, but a black American? That's that's a great question. So probably one of my earliest memories of um, blackness was probably just an innocuous thing. So me and my dad went to a baseball game. So we went to the White Sox stadium and we were just kind of watching the game. And then every couple of you minutes, Chicago? that's your problem right there. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> that's a problem. So we were, we were watching the game and then every couple of seconds we would feel like peanuts or popcorns thrown at our heads. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, we were like, is it raining? What's the problem? We turn around and there's like this this white man and his son that they're literally throwing peanuts and popcorn at us. So my dad, you Awful. know, he's a he's a spitfire, so he doesn't take a lot of mess. <laughs> so he went up there, yeah. and, you know, he pretty much uh, uh, approached them and and kind of ran them down <laughs> about that. So that was one, of the, one of the first, yeah, praise the Lord. I mean, um, you know, that was injustice, and he saw that, and he's always been someone to say, hey, that's not right. You're not going to do that. And I had to think about like why why are they treating us this way? And I, and it, in retrospect, I felt like it was because we were black people in this stadium that was predominantly white at the time watching a, mm. a pastime. So that was my, one of my earliest memories. How old were you then? Oh gosh, I think I was around 10, 10 or so, um, where I really mm. felt like okay, I'm black, but now I'm, I feel like I'm in a space where it, it's almost like I'm not wanted. Um, you know, I was fortunate in school up to that point, grade school, I was surrounded by people who really encouraged me and saw things in me, but it was really in outside of school and out in public and in certain spaces, not just then, but definitely further along in my career where um, things would be either overt or even more subtle about me not being wanted and well, like, because I'm black. <laughs> yeah. And talk about that in, in the context of med school. I mean, we, I went to med school in the late uh, or early I guess mid nineties, I'm trying to place it. I mean, and we had a very small minority of students who were African-American. It was well known that in med school, there were not a lot of um, black doctors graduating at the time. So talk about your experience. You were a few years after my time in med school. Was that, did you feel um, racism as it pertains to schooling? Oh, absolutely. I did. In fact, you, the, the, the AAMC, they, they, they released a couple of years ago, a study about the decline of black men in medicine. There were more black men that were matriculated into med school in 1978 than it was in 2014. So it's it's still very much so an issue. And when I went to wow. medical school, I was the only black person in my class of probably about 140 students. So I, I uh, unbelievable. 
it was unbelievable, again, to be on the west side of Chicago. And, the, you know, I think that the student body should reflect the patient population that you serve. And then on the west side of Chicago, I mean, it doesn't get more diverse right. than that, you know. So um, I was uh, definitely experienced uh, situations where um, there were microaggressions uh, and, and micro insults. So, you know, uh, especially during third and fourth year. So, you, you know, for sure that third and fourth year, it's more about like subjective evaluations and what people think about you. Right. It's not just how you did on a test, but like, how are you perceived on a team? So um, a lot of times I would hear, hear phrases such as, oh, you're so well-spoken. Um, for a black person, mm. or you're much more well spoken than I thought you would be, or oh, you're smart for this per- type of person, or um, even overt expressions of people saying that I shouldn't even be a doctor, even though there were no real, um, it, there wasn't real evidence of that um, in, as it pertains to grades or performance or relating to patients that were under. Or did people assume that, oh, you got to do med school because you're black? Yeah, you, you can. I feel like that's a thing well. that happens a lot, right? Yeah. So um, it's it's very much, it could be overt or covert. So it could be, um, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or not, not listening to the plight of Black people and what it takes to get even to that place. And then even currently as a faculty member, the ways that I have to still have to explain to, to colleagues, um, for example, when we're admitting students and reading reading personal statements and portfolios that we have to think about the journey that this person's been through and not just raw numbers. Um, that we have to realize that, well, if someone had no parents in the home or they're scratching to survive and yet they still got to this place to even apply, we have to think about that in a holistic way before we say thumbs up or thumbs down. You're on the admissions committee now of Rush, but even looking back, I mean, did anybody ever like, when you were a student, I mean, I still can't wrap my mind around being the only black student in med school. I I would imagine that was lonely, first of all, but did anybody, was anybody apologetic? Like, hey, I'm, you know, was it awkward or was it ignored? Like, how, how did the administration handle that? You know, um, when I was there, I think a little bit of my dad came out. So uh, I was a little bit more of like, okay, well, what are we going to do about that so that this doesn't happen again? So there were mm-hmm. task forces and then there were faculty members and upperclassmen of color, mainly that would um, really um, take me under their wing and make sure that I was supported. And there were a few white faculty members here and there that might say every once in a while, like, oh man, that really sucks. Um, but what I was yeah. really looking for was how can we have systemic change, right? I don't want just platitudes or pats on the back, but what we need is like sustainable systemic changes. So that's what I've always been about, um, especially where I'm at now as a faculty member. Um, so yeah, it, so, it was, so it's interesting. You put action to words, right? So so what you're doing, you sit on the admissions committee, you spe- sit on many committees and speak into that. Is that what you felt to be like, talk about what strategies that you've seen in your last decade that work to make systemic change? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a, it's a challenge. You know, I think, I think one of the most important things that I'm realizing that I need is allyship. Um, the truth of the matter is a lot of times as a person of color, um, I take it upon myself to feel like I have to be the one to fully dismantle a system that I've been disenfranchised by. When in reality, what I have to do is challenge, challenge allies and those who are white or non-black to make sure that they're doing their work. Um, and dismantling it for themselves and also that they're educating themselves. So what I've been doing lately is one, just speaking up and then providing resources for people to read, um, whether they're in the church or not. Like there's there's different texts for people who are secular and there's different 
different texts out now that people who are even in the church can read about as far as racial relations and true reconciliation um, and, mm. and the process that that has to take, which could be lamenting, confessing, and then actually building bridges, you know? What, uh, before, I want to tap into this allies conversation in a second, but what is, how have you seen the percentage of African-American students in the medical school community change? I mean, have you okay. seen some fruit? Yeah, thankfully, thank God there has been improvement. So there hasn't been that issue since since I came through Rush. So um, the numbers are increasing, but um, I, you know, I think my role is to make sure that we don't rest on our laurels. So I think nowadays we have class sizes that may have oh, somewhere to between seven to 10 um, black students, and then also maybe about seven to 10 um, Latinx students as well. Well, and, and, and that obviously we can go down the tangent of so many reasons why the numbers are lower from a systemic perspective again, but go, let's go back to allies for a minute. So what, define an ally. So yeah, actually, let me, I, cause I took some notes. I'm going to read what I wrote here. <laughs> so I think, I think of an ally, I think of someone who is, um, is anti-racist. So they're actually um, actively seeking not only to raise their consciousness about race or racism, but they're also taking action when they see racial power inequities in everyday life. So for me, that's that's an ally. So that goes beyond saying something like you had already mentioned, but actually doing something. So that means raising your voice. That means calling someone out in a meeting. That means auditing a policy that um, shows that there's 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 misdistribution or maldistribution of, of outcomes. Um, so it's really like using that sphere of influence that you have for the greater good. So, so, so on that, does a person who puts a black box on their Insta an ally or is the jury still out? You know, the jury's still out. So, I mean, there is such a thing as like performative allyship, right? Yeah. Um, so Virtual think, signaling. Yeah. yeah. And I think as a black person, I still have to remember the Lord wants me to forgive and, um, mm. and, and to trust, you know? So when I see that, I say, that's a great step. But then I'm always looking for, okay, what else are we doing, right? So I hope it's not just a black box and then we go back to life as normal, but rather you're engaging in tough conversations with your Black or, or Latino colleagues about, well, how are they actually doing? Or or even asking those tough, tough questions like, have I been complicit <laughs> in in working into this system and I didn't even know it? Like, are there blind spots that um, that you could tell me about? So those are, that's tough to do. That's going from a place of, authority or superiority to, to, to less than that. And that's, that's a, that's a tough thing to do, especially in America where we kind of pride ourselves on. Being really, on top. Right. So, so in that vein, um, have you found, this is a two part question. I'll start with the first, have you found more allies in the last, let's say six months, maybe that's maybe a year. I mean, there's been more happening in the race conversation in the United States. Post George Floyd, that would be even more recent, two or three months. Have you found more allies lately? I have, and I've I've been really grateful for that. So, I mean, I hate that it took something so tragic for that to happen, but in in any case, yes, I have had people um, speak up in meetings. I've had people send me messages through Facebook or through text just to say, Carl, how are you doing? Or um, let's meet, let's... Let's let's create a committee. Let's brainstorm. Let's like let's not let this go to sleep. So I've definitely seen a new sense of of awokenness 
in, in Kali. And, and, and and God. So yeah, we haven't actually, we have, nobody's ever defined on, I've done a few interviews so far and no one's ever defined woke. Maybe actually before, I don't know which I want to ask for. Hold, hold the woke for a second. Cause I want to go back. It's just, well, let's stick the thread of allies for a minute. So we're talking about our more allies. Here's, here's a question. Uh, do you see the church and particularly the white church as an ally right now? You know, I think that it's, um, there may be pockets of that. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think there's been many instances currently and in history where um, I think the, the biggest indictment that I could make towards the white church is, is silence. Um, so um, allyship is not silence because silence actually can play into oppression. And I think a lot of times um, I've seen white churches or even white Christians not say anything. And that could be for fear of not not knowing what to say or, or, or fear of saying the wrong thing. Um, but looking outward, um, not saying anything um, is still very damaging and, and can be hurtful from the experience of a, a Black person and a Black Christian. Right. Now, is racism individual or is it systemic? So are people racist or is the system racist? So there's different levels of, of racism. So there can be internalized racism. There can be um, systemic racism. There can be institutional racism. So um, so racism, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very insidious and um, pervasive um, um, power. It's a, it's, it's a, you can see it between people. You can see it in, in literally every system that we can think of in the world. So education, healthcare, business, housing, economics, mm-hmm. and then those things combined can lead to systemic racism and that can lead to poor outcomes um, and dis- disproportionate outcomes uh, amongst different racial groups. And so in the church, do you, it's sort of like to tease down a little bit sort of white Christians in the white church. Yeah. What's the bigger guilt? Is it, are individuals just not seeing their own? Because I really think we're all blinded to um, to racism. I'll tell you a very, um, I'll, I'll be vulnerable. I mean, I think leading with vulnerability. I remember in med school thinking um, that some of the black students that were there may not have been as smart. Mm-hmm. I'll be very honest. And I've repented of that. And I still, I, I, I can already tell you, you're far smarter than I am. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm convinced of that. I, oh. I mean, that's serious. I didn't, I didn't last in academia. I'm being serious. I, I just, it wasn't for me. It just takes tenacity. It takes, so all this to say, I, I think there are, and I never thought of myself as racist, right? So I think this is, and I was a Christian and I, and I felt called to ministry even then. So I think, I think the church, and I only use this, I say this and I admit this because that's what I think the white church is blind or I don't know what to, to acknowledge those those points of racism that are individual. And so is it is the bigger problem in the church right now that individuals don't see it clearly or is it that the church hasn't identified this big problem of systemic racism that even if a pastor might say, well, I'm truly not racist yeah. with or without thoughts, but- that they're still racist responsible to fight for their African-American brothers and sisters? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a powerful question. And then, I I mean, I thank you for your honesty. Like a lot of people wouldn't even say that. I mean, so, I mean, I appreciate that, you know? Um, So when you, when you ask those questions, I thought of this, there's an image that I wish I could send you that has like a triangle of what, uh, what we'd say is like white, white um, privilege or even white supremacy. So there's overt ones like, you know, lynching, hate crimes, using the N-word, burning crosses, right? 
And I think a lot of times yeah. we can use the word racism, white people say, well, I'm not racist because I'm not doing any of that stuff. But then underneath that, almost like an iceberg, there's a litany of things that we can do consciously or unconsciously that can really still play into racism and, and, and um, implicit biases that we have. Um, we may not think that they are. And when we don't, when we're not aware of those things, then that allows us to kind of go about business as usual and not even try to address or confront the ways that we have maybe seen our fellow brothers and sisters as less than. Um, so some mm-hmm. people may have felt how you felt, but they w- would never say it. Um, but it still would show up in other behaviors and policies mm-hmm. and how you relate to, to, to people of color. So there's a litany of them. That could be racial profiling. That could be blaming the victim. That could say that could even be saying that, well, all lives matter. So if all lives matter, then I don't really need to do much to say that Black Lives Matter because, you know, it's just a, it's just a, a fact. But that neglects, mm-hmm. it, it, neglects, it neglects the truth that the experience that a Black person has navigating America can be vastly different um, than the, 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 the path that a white person has been through, that there are certain privileges or certain resources that white people tend to have access to or they can move in spaces where it's essentially assumed that they belong. Whereas as a Black person, even someone who's an academic um, I, I can't uh, always assume that. I have to be very careful um, about mm. what I do and how I navigate. And that's an added, uh, it's an added stress. It's, a, it's a, what some would call racial stress or racial fatigue, even. Right. Well, like compassion fatigue, the same sort of thing where, yeah, yeah I can understand that. So, so, so the church, though, just to pick a little bit more on that, um, I do think they have a responsibility besides just relying on the Holy Spirit to convict individuals of sin. That's one layer of it. But it almost seems like there is a sort of a bigger structural sort of. So so you go back to my example. All right. I, I hate even dwelling on it. But but really looking back, I think I mean, I remember a couple of my colleagues who are black in medical school. They did worse on exams. And and so some of them had to, you know, they they, we, they rarely held people back, but it was, but you knew sort of that they were getting special attention. They would talk about it, you know, so it was, a, I knew th- those things. So, but what is missed there is an understanding that, like you were saying before about admissions into med school, there are reasons why that might have led to that based on, this is where I think systemic issues are so critical because you know, looking at even now, like black children going through school may not be afforded the same um, educational, you know, endeavors and, and, and on, 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 you can break things down to where there is a systemic problem that might affect the person who's graduated from college and med school and on and on. And so it's not, it's not a fair assessment to be like, well, you're doing worse in, in, on the you know, standardized test, therefore you're not as smart. And so in a sense, this is where I see maybe the church and I talk about it now from a leadership perspective, has a responsibility besides just, okay, Holy Spirit convict individual Christians of racism, but sort of to fight for some of those systemic ideas, that injustices, I guess, the systemic injustices. It, it, it really makes me think about the verse that says, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and systems, right? So when I think about yeah. racism, I think of it as like, it's a, it's a stronghold, it's a sin. And we have to be aware of it and we have to, we have to pray and then act. You're a, you're absolutely right. So we won't fight if we don't think that it's actually a, a fight that's happening. If we just say, "Oh, we'll just do better or perform better," but we don't realize that someone is actually carrying the burden and the attacks of of racism that um, really d- disproportionately attacks certain people, um, then those who aren't affected can can make excuses and 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 
and do the things that we already talked about. It's like, well, just study harder or, you know, yeah. just, just yeah. listen when really it's way more um, nuanced than that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, and, and, and a lot of Christians, you know, go back to, well, it's the lack of fathers in the black communities and, you know, and, and certainly there's a lot of layers to it, but like, yeah, it's almost like a cop out finding excuses for the problem rather than trying to fix the problem. Yeah. And I would, you know, with stuff like this, you, you want the church to be the, the first, like whenever there's an issue in society, the church should be the first on the scene to have an answer for that. So um, that's something that I, w- that I want to see um, more in the body of Christ that um, we should be, we should be present. We should be asking questions and not pointing the finger per se. And we should be doing things to really love and protect one another. I think love is really going to be the key. Love, love covers covers a multitude of sins, but we also have to make sure that um, with with reconciliation, there has to be a lament. Like I think that's another thing that's missing. That you know we have to, like like you even said with your example, like you said you repented of that. Like you know that there's there should be a certain pain that that hits you. Like yeah. oh, well, I really I really missed the mark there. Oh, you know what I'm 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 culpable for. Um, of 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 blaming this person um for their subjective experience that's very real and i've used that as a cop-out i need to repent and ask the lord to help me to lament to feel bad about that and but at the same time not to stay there but be um mobilized into action and to 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 well yeah and, and I, I think over the years you you see a lot of blind spots i think i want to call them like i'll give you another example that once and those are the things that I genuinely like are markers in my brain of events that have sort of turned the switch on for me per se. And so I remember once, and I actually, it's funny because I've this, the person who, who this happened with, I've actually told her on a podcast that this had happened and, mm-hmm. and, and repented at the time and after. And I, and I always felt so like bad. And, and, but, you know, but I think it's also motivated me to change and God uses the, the, the discomfort. To, but I remember telling a sister in the Lord, who's a strong leader in, in social media now, um, very gentle soul, but strong leader. And, and I remember saying to her once in a conversation that she was the whitest black person I knew. Uh-huh. And I remember her being offended. This is back in, I mean, this is before Trayvon. And, you know, it was a while back. And, and so I was dated back to maybe mid 2000. It was early on. And all this to say, I remember sort of being surprised at how offended she was. I didn't understand that that was offensive to her. Right. I think it is offensive and I see it clearer now. And I think I think those are the things that sometimes white people like, yes, you're right. There's the lynching. There's, a, you know, the obvious racism. But, you know, you see somebody get out of their car, shoot a guy who's running. I mean, every everybody, every Christian is like, this is evil. Don't do that. But then there's layers to it where there are blind spots. That's How do right. white people learn and see those blind spots as sin? Well, I mean, I mean, again, that's a great question, too. So, I mean, um. I, I really am big on that lamenting piece. So there are two, like when I was trying to prepare for this, I was thinking of two, two, two scriptures. So I, I think of the, the, the prodigal son um, in mm. the story where it says that, you know, he went out, kind of squandered the money. And then he eventually he came to himself. He realized, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm with pigs. I've lost my fortune. I need to come to myself and get it back together and come back to the father. Yeah. I think when we lament, especially the white church, if, if you spend time lamenting about, man, I really may have said some some really bad things, or maybe I didn't speak up when I needed to, or I said something offensive to a person of color, a black person, um, that I need to come to myself and realize that 
this is not something that should bring about shame, but it should bring about change, right? So repentance is really regret and remorse, remorse, but it's also a turning away and going towards where God actually wants you to be, right? And then mm-hmm. I thought of the story of Zacchaeus back in Luke 19, um, where, you know, he was not really, uh, not really cared for in his, his society. You know, he was the, the tax man had a lot of money, but when he encountered Jesus, um, he produced work that resembled repentance. He said, you know, whoever I wronged, I'm going to pay them back X amount. I'm going to just, I'm just going to make this right. Um, so I think with the, the white church or anyone who's trying to be engaged in this sort of work, just think to yourself, well, what sort of radical change can I make that is observable? Um, what privilege do I have that, that I could potentially lay aside for the sake of the body of Christ? That could be money. That could be resources. That could mean a, a vote on a board that you're in. That could mean um, mentoring uh, uh, an at-risk youth um, in your free time. Mm-hmm. It, it could mean a variety of things. It can mean talking to someone that you don't even know at the grocery store just to hear what their story is instead of assuming that you know, oh, okay, this is a black guy. He's probably dangerous. But no, why don't you? Why don't you extend that that invitation and again build, build that bridge? So those are some of the things that really came to my mind for, for that. They're little things, but they're big things. And I think I think it kind of goes back to so much of Christianity. You know, I think we're living in this age where everything has to be on social media. And you know, if you haven't filmed it, it's not real. And, but but really, it's you're talking about like those day by day kingdom moments where you uh, exude Christ likeness and you see humans as made in the image of God. And that's sort of what you're describing. I want to I ask you a question that maybe is a bit challenging um, to talk about, um, or maybe not, but, but I'm sure you've thought about it. But the church often struggles with Black Lives Movement as, or Black Lives Matter as a movement. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, 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 I, and, I, and I appreciate that. I do. I, I, I really do. But, but how, do you, how do you walk that line? The nuances of saying Black Lives Matter, because I think that statement in itself is true, but then sort of struggling with the entity of the political movement, Black Lives Matter. What, what's yeah. your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great, that is a tough question. So one, one of my other thoughts was like, I think the church, and I think we've settled for like this Americanized version of the church that kind of mirrors whatever culture says. And then I see a lot of politics being mixed in there. So um, I'll be I'll be completely honest. Sometimes when I think of like the American church, I think of, the idea of Jesus having like this Confederate flag and a rifle and um, being white and saying no blacks or anyone else allowed. It has to look like almost like an old, older white man, you know? Um, and I, in the, the Bible I read, that is not the Jesus that's depicted. It's not based on political lines. It's, it's really one blood. Like he died for all um, at the feet of mm-hmm. Jesus. We're all the same um, that, and we need to treat, each other that same way. Um, so when I think about the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, um, for, for me, what's important to me is that it's, you know, Black Lives Matter as well. <laughs> you know, Black Lives Matter too. You know what I'm saying? No one's, no one's saying that they matter more or less. We're just saying they matter. <laughs> and I don't think right. that is really an, an offensive statement. I, and I, I, it, it's kind of uh, strange that that is argued and dissected and misinterpreted um it Mm. should be a call to action with the church to say yeah black lives do matter and here's how we as a church are gonna gonna prove that because unfortunately there there has been a turning away i have friends who have left the church 
um, because again, the, the church was silent about it, that the pastor doesn't preach about it. It's almost like it, it never happened, you know? Um, and yeah. from the experience of a black person, that can be really hurtful. Again, it's really, it's almost like not ignoring or not even appreciating the experiences of um, several people who may even be in your congregation. Yeah. And we have to. Yeah. So, and and, and I, I agree. I mean, I think that the issue becomes that movement, the political movement that, that many would argue is rooted in Marxism, is anti Jesus, and on and yeah. on. You know, I think that we've researched the movement. And so, so I think the trouble often isn't so much that, I don't know, I think it's both, actually, because I think there are people that struggle with just saying Black Lives Matter. I've never struggled with that. In fact, I would leave, I, I like that statement. And I'm willing, I would even say, I'm willing to sacrifice being misunderstood yeah. for supporting the movement, right? I mean, it's almost like, although I don't support the movement, but to me, the gain in this conversation is enough that I'm, I'm willing to say it, risking being misunderstood than not saying it, right? But but I do struggle with the movement. So what do you tell those Christians like who, who may just disagree philosophically with the movement of Black Lives Matter? So, so, so I, I think I follow. So I, I, and I, I think I agree with you. I, I care more about, um, the, that, that black lives matter within the context of the church. Yeah. I guess my input yeah. with, with any movement, there is potential for it to be, um, misinterpreted or even perverted, but I'd say still keep your eyes on Jesus and what your part is to play in this. Um, because it, there's right. so many different layers to it, but I think we have to keep the main thing, the main thing. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think you have two choices. One is to say that movement is evil. Therefore, I'll never use that sentence. And the risk there is like your black brothers and sisters are going to be confused and and hurt. And and I think the damage is going to be greater than saying, all right, I know the movement is is not Christian based. I know it and I don't support the movement, but I can say it and sort of without having to qualify it and willing to be so it's like when Jesus supped with sinners, in a sense, and it is a bad analogy, but but it's like he's willing to be accused of being a winebibber and sinner, even though he wasn't, because yeah. the value of love was greater. That's a that, that's a great way to put it. I'd say like let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, and then that be misinterpreted yeah. for something even worse. Because if even if you put that statement out, if someone wants to know, you can still clarify what you mean. Um, but by all means, please. Yeah, exactly. be and, <laughs> right. And, and, you know, and I think this is another, you know, sort of, again, you get into the politics versus the sin issue, right? I mean, yeah. easily racism can leap from being a heart issue to, to politics. And so, so the other facet I see that's also difficult, I think, in this realm of Christianity is sort of, uh, there's like, when you think of social justice, and I think Vadi Bakum does a really good talk on that and sort of summarizes some of the tenets of social justice. And, and so, so, so often it's like the rights of minorities and you know, immigrants and things like that to like the second big tier is like women's rights, which Christians are divided on that. Right. I mean, I'd be considered to some to be on the fringe, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm single, I'm allowed now. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So I do like a feminist, even though I'm not, but, but so to this <laughs> facet, and then there's a third facet, which is also troublesome to conservative Christians, which is the whole LGBTQ movement. And so I think, you know, I think, first of all, I, I, I do struggle. I don't see the discussion on racism to be, um, similar, and I know I'm, I'm probably walking into some hot waters here, and that's that's okay. Uh, I don't see the the conversation about racism to be the same as the conversation about sexuality. So I think that's yeah. I feel like you know discussions with race. I feel like it's it should be low hanging fruit. Like I, I am often surprised with well, yes. how much um, dissension yes. is when I think this one. Yes. If you look in scripture, there's a lot of arguments made about 
we we need to be one. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? There's there's a lot. I, again, I I think it is. It, it's not something that I, I feel like should be heavily debated. It should be okay. Thus saith the Lord. Yeah, How can we actually do that? How can we make that happen yeah, in a way, right. the way that it's not happening? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I agree with you. I, I'm with you on that. What do, what do you wish um, Christian white people listening right now would hear from you? Um, I, I, I just would say, you know, I, we, I was talking to one of my, my colleagues and, and uh, she, she put it beautifully. It's like, you know, she, she came into work one day and this was like right after the George Floyd case and, 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 and all of that. And she, you know, uh, came in and just broke down crying. And um, mm. she, she had her hoodie on and she worked the whole shift with her hoodie on. And she said, you know what, I'm, I, I want people to feel my pain. Like I, you have, you're going to sit in my pain, right? So I think I want white Christians and whoever's listening just to, to sit in the pain of, of, yeah. of people that, are, are, that don't look like you. Sit in the pain for that even just for a little bit and see how uncomfortable that is. And then compare that, is, compare that to the reality of someone who is black trying to navigate um, a country that is rooted in, in racist uh, systems and policies and is trying to make the most of it. Um, so I think if you're able to sit in that and pray, pray for wisdom, pray for, for your hearts to be reawoken and, and changed or even inspired, or even pray for courage to, to do what the Lord's calling you to do in your your sphere of influence, um, that would be be wonderful. I'd say engage with people who are the other in everyday life with honor and deference and look for opportunities to build relationships and hear stories. As a physician, a lot of times what I say to my patients when I first meet them is, what's your story? You know, because stories can breed similarities and build bridges. So people that look completely different from me, I'm often surprised with how similar we are when we start talking and hearing each other's stories. Those are the sort of things that tear down stereotypes that can often fuel anger or hate, right? And then um, mm-hmm. another thing that I heard from one of my colleagues is uh, what I would ask white Christians or white people to do is one, uh, decenter yourself, um, and then also educate yourself. So there are all sorts of resources out there. Um, you know, I've been as as a person, I've just been reading um, One Blood by John John M. Perkins. He's been doing this sort of work for years and years and years, and he he writes wonderful parts. Oh, sorry, what'd you say? He's a famous preacher. Yeah, famous preacher, and he's done you know a lot of. Nobody's given that recommendation. That's actually a good. I I I wanted just to reiterate the title. One blood, you said, and is that, would that be if somebody had to read one book? Would you recommend that Christian? Yeah, somebody yeah. Christian so who wants you're to. looking for a Christian book that has has wonderful, powerful words on the the church on race. Um, I would highly recommend one blood. One blood by John M. Perkins. Okay. Um, as we wrap up a couple of, of, of thoughts, you did say, uh, and I like that decenter yourself. I want to, I want to kind of come to the end here soon, but decenter yourself. I want you to talk a little bit about that. Cause I, I read a book by, um, I've read a handful of books, n- not as much as I probably need to, but I'm working on it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm woke, so I'm <laughs> but not long to catch up a little bit, but I read Austin Channing's book and, she talks, uh, oh no, this wasn't Austin. This was a tweet. All right, I'm sorry. And I, the tweet was basically a thread, sort of, uh, it was interesting. I hadn't thought about it ever like that. And, and you, you find out a lot on Twitter that challenges your thinking a little. And, uh-huh. and a black person was talking about a white, that one of the most dangerous 
people is is white people who think they're safe they're not racist and they're and so and so they'll they're they'll come to you she was saying this this african-american person was talking about how the white person comes and they think you know they got it but really it's all about them feeling good about not being racist so, so it's so still the center of the world is still that white person so when you mentioned that decenter yourself reminded me of that um, I mean, I think that's a fine balance, right? Because sometimes a white person may not feel like they're doing that. But how do you, and I think that's central to Christianity. How would you recommend decentralizing yourself? Yeah, I think, I mean, part of me feels like that's going to be a true work of the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, I wish you could shake someone <laughs> and make them, make them do that, but that's not, um, that's not the case. So I'll, I'll backtrack just for a second. So so, so I, I, I had this conversation and then they said one thing. So if, if you're black in this moment in time, your job is to survive. And then if you're white in this society, your job is to decenter yourself. And to decenter yourself, I think you, you have to do things that are going to make you aware of the plight of people around you who don't have the same sort of privileges that you have. So that, again, comes from conversations. That comes from critical reasoning, critical thinking and in dialogue. So you can't do this in a, a vacuum or else it can be a dangerous situation. If you feel like you got it and you don't, then you won't even engage in this work because you think that you already have mastered it when really it's a, it's a process for all of us, um, black and white alike, you know? Right. That's really good. I love that. Um, I love those thoughts. Uh, last kind of question before we start wrapping up. Do you, today I read an article, I, I think it was in the Washington Post. I don't remember which uh, newspaper, but they interviewed Trillian Newbell. And, and the gist of it is um, uh, this idea of, are you worried? A lot of black people are starting to talk about worrying about white lash, meaning mm. the whole racism is sort of a fad. Do you worry in or out of the church really that, yeah, it's important today, but couple of months from now, people are back to business? Or is there something different now? Like, how do you navigate that and continue to maintain hope that there may be change in the horizon? Yeah, that's a great point. So I had just heard that phrase, white lash, from one of my students last night. I hadn't even heard that until then. But I, I think about the verse in Galatians. It's like, do not grow weary in well-doing. Um, because if we, if we don't faint, we can see this. Um, so I, I have to trust the Lord that whatever I'm doing, um, that he's given me a call to kind of push the arrow uh, towards, towards, towards the right side. So I want to do that with all my might, um, whether it's in the medical sector or even in, in the church itself. So that's something that keeps me going. And, and I do believe that we can see that, but it's going to require work <laughs> and truthfulness yeah. and courage on everyone's part and humility. And again, prayer and work of the Holy Spirit to move because that it's a, it's a heart issue, right? So things won't really change unless there's changes in the heart of heart of men and women to do so. Um, and I you're forgot. an awesome guy. <laughs> I, I just I think you honestly, you, so many nuggets in this podcast. I've loved every bit that you've given us. Uh, how can people connect with you? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, so, uh, well, my, my, I, my, I work at Rush, so my, I have an email. Should I, I could, I can certainly share my email if you like. And then also I do have a Twitter handle. I need to use Twitter more, so maybe this would be an opportunity <laughs> to be more engaged. Most doctors don't have the time it takes to run that. I place. know. It seems daunting, <laughs> but I do have one. <laughs> so uh, my uh, Twitter is... Yeah, give us your Twitter handle, Twitter handle, and if you're comfortable, your email. Somebody might want to... If it's if if you get any bad emails from this podcast, you send them my way. But yeah. most people are 
I think that you challenge people. And honestly, if you're listening and you are writing down Carl's email, I would love for you to email him and encourage him for for the work he's doing and for uh, and tell him you're praying for him and for every black brother and sister we've had on this podcast. I think the work is steep in front of us and it's not a short haul. It's a long haul uh, work. And I think that's one thing that a lot of the um, black friends that I have, have have mentioned. This is not a quick fix. This is something we're going to have to be committed to. So tell us uh, uh, your Twitter handle and your email, Carl, if you don't mind. Sure. Sure. My, my Twitter, Twitter handle is at uh, D R C E L J. And then my email is. And then your email. My email is Carl, uh, C-A-R-L underscore E underscore uh, L-A-M-B-E-R-T at rush.edu. Great. Great. Hey, um, I know you've had a, uh, you have a busy day going and you've taken this time. And it's funny, I've told all of our uh, people that I've interviewed, hey, you know, I want to try to keep this at 20 minutes so that, you know, people will listen and burn out. And I don't think I've had one conversation go 20 minutes yet. So uh, I really appreciate the time you've dedicated and just your expertise and your most, mostly your compassion. Uh, it's palpable. And I, I just, I'm grateful for you and for your life. So thank oh. you for being on with us. Oh, God bless you. Thank you for what you're doing. And this is the highlight of my week. So thank you for having me. Awesome. Hey, guys, as we wrap up, remember, you can find out more about my ministry, Living With Power at livingwithpower.org. Email me if you've got any questions. Just shoot me an email through the contact page. And while you're at it, download the app. We've got tons of free resources, Bible studies, inspirational talks, you name it, it's there. So we love Jesus. The whole point of this podcast is to renew our hope in the Lord. He's at work with or without us, but we get so much joy in participating in kingdom work. So thanks for tuning in and I'll see you again next week.